Hi, and welcome to Mormon Discussions Podcast. I'm your guest host, John Young. Today, I'm honored to sit down and talk with Mormon philosopher Adam Miller. Adam Miller is the author of An Open Letter to Mormon Thinkers and Letters to a Young Mormon. He's a regular contributor to Times and Seasons. Adam, you consider yourself, like I said, more of a Mormon philosopher than an apologist. The apologist will often approach an issue such as Jeremy Runnell's uh, letter to a CES director with counterpoints, reason, pointing out logical fallacies. But in your recent uh, blog post to Times and Seasons, uh, which you titled A Letter to a uh, CES Student, do you take a, a point of view of are we asking the right questions uh, when it comes to Mormonism? Has Jeremy ever responded? No, I don't. I don't know Jeremy. Uh, I've never had any contact with him. And as you point out, I think my own my own letter to a CES student is a kind of oblique response to his letter to a CES director. So there's no kind of. I don't think it's not a kind of direct response to some of the concerns he raises. Okay, so you haven't heard from Jeremy, which I think is. I think that makes sense. When I read your your essay, one of the questions I had has to do with this idea of relieving suffering of others and handling the suffering that you can't relieve and putting focus on that opposed to maybe the historical truth claims of the church. So I totally agree with how we handle suffering, the importance of that. But it seems to me that if we look at the church's history and claims that, you know, Joseph Smith received the Book of Mormon, and, you know, a lot of us feel if the Book of Mormon is false, this whole thing is a fraud. Therefore, a lot of us are concerned about those truth claims. So how do you respond, you know, to that um, assertion that the truth claims uh, are so important uh, to us that to say they aren't might be a contradiction? Well, I think I think the church makes a couple different kinds of truth claims and uh as you point out some of them are some of them are more central than others at the, at the heart uh, at the heart of what the church is claiming is that uh this is a restoration of the gospel and the gospel is the good news is the good news uh that god uh himself came down among us in the person of Jesus Christ uh, that he dwelt with us, that uh, that he, uh, by way of his atonement, has made it possible to address fundamental human problems of sin and death and suffering, uh, and that though he ascended back to heaven, right, his uh, he remains with us in the body of the church and the body of Christ and in the spirit that's manifest there. And I think that that's that's the beating heart of the gospel or these claims about. Uh, about Christ, about the atonement, about grace, about the possibility of addressing uh, and relieving suffering and overcoming death uh, and rejoining uh, the world of, of the living. And I think that those are the things that, uh, those are the things that in the end we have to focus our attention on. A lot of the kinds of uh, historical truth claims that the church makes about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, uh, they're not unimportant, but I think I think Joseph Smith and the authors of the Book of Mormon would themselves uh, adamantly agree that that they're just scaffolding with respect to the central message of the gospel itself. 
Do you have, know of any scriptural reference that might suggest to us that we should be less interested in the mysteries and, you know, some of these side issues and more towards the, I guess, the heart and soul of what we're trying to accomplish? Well, maybe if we, maybe if we put it this way, I don't, I don't think that we want to lay aside, uh, the importance of historical truth claims. Uh, but I think it's partly a question here of what kinds of, uh, what kinds of avenues we're going to privilege in our testing those truth claims. Uh, I mean, you could, there's a, there's a time and I think in a place for kind of, uh, third hand historical investigation of those truth claims. Uh, but there's also, there's also a time and a place and, uh, this has to, I think, be weighed in the balance for a kind of first-person, first-hand investigation of whether or not the things that have been claimed work. Okay. Right. If we're if we're going to if we're going to investigate whether or not this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, then we should probably just start with an investigation of whether or not this is in fact a good news and it does in fact it does in fact work. You give a, I guess, an argument that we have to sacrifice through our religion, but also we may have to sacrifice of that religion, which sacrifice would include our, our doubts and our differences with it. Now, it, you know, on the surface, it seems to me that you're basically saying, don't think, just do what we say. I mean, that's a simplistic way of putting it, but, you know, some might feel like that goes back to some kind of Dark Ages mentality. How is that not the case? I think uh, that, as the lectures on faith put it, it's true uh, that only a religion that asks you to sacrifice everything will have the power to save, right? And so, mm-hmm. I think that that everything is pretty that everything is pretty all inclusive. Uh, there's a certain point at which, uh, in your in your practice of religion, it's, religion is going to gain some traction in your life, and it's going to require you to make serious sacrifices in different kinds of ways. In the end, it's going to ask you to sacrifice, it's going to ask you to sacrifice everything, all of it. And that's going to include your kinds of doubts and differences, right? Those aren't, those aren't going to be any exception to what God's going to ask us to sacrifice. Uh, but I think it's also true, on the other hand, that that all includes our kind of, uh, our faith and our confidence as well, right? I mean, everything has to be put on the altar here, right? All the way from the, all the way from the one end of the spectrum to the other, both both our confidences and uh, and our expectations and our kind of doubts and uh, disappointments, all of that's going to have to go on the altar there. And I don't think that that means I don't think that that means that reason is going to get uh, sacrificed along the way anything more than anything else, right? Part of what's going to have to be sacrificed is your rationality. But also part of what's going to have to be sacrificed here is your irrationality, right? Your, your, your and my, the way that we, uh, tend to be invested in different kinds of, uh, justifications and self-deceptions that won't stand the test of, uh, of reason or, or careful thinking. And so I think, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna always involve a sacrifice of both my willingness to, to sacrifice my confidence in my human reason when I come up to the limits of it, but also my willingness to, uh, to sacrifice an attempt to avoid the demands of reason. And I think it's often the case, and I, I said this uh, repeatedly, maybe even in that very post, uh, that uh, 
in general, the problem isn't that we're thinking too hard. The problem isn't that we haven't we haven't really started thinking nearly hardly enough. Yeah, and this this kind of reminds me, and I, I of a personal uh, situation that that I have, and uh, you know, I have a child who's uh, mentally retarded. He has to be tube fed. He's got a lot of issues, and for me as a father, when he was initially born, and these problems came to light. Uh, that he has a genetic disorder and, you know, a lot of things that you, expectations and hopes that you have for the child are, are gone. And, you know, looking at things from a, perhaps a utilitarian perspective, it, it seems like a waste of time and energy. And, you know, the hospitals charge million dollars to get him out in our home and, He's cost society lots of money along the way. Uh, it's just kind of like what, I mean, it, not to sound too terrible, but it's kind of like a money pit from a just purely rational perspective. So when I think about my situation with my son, I don't think there's any rational way to spin this that makes sense for what we're doing. But when I, if I sacrifice that rationality, which comes in quite useful in a lot of ways, and, you know, it, you realize that there's something bigger going on, and there's a reason why even the most hardcore, uh, a small government conservative is going to say it's okay to spend money on <laughs> government money on my son because there's something bigger that our simple models, uh, rational models, aren't going to solve for us, and we really are a, a I guess, a social creature and a, a transcendent one too that has to rise above the the ways we reason about things. So I think I understand well what you're saying uh, with this. And, uh, you know, I hope that readers of your blog, or I should say this letter to a CES student, you know, will look for uh, occasions in their lives where rationality didn't give you the final answer. And you had to rely on more than just do that one ability. Well, that's it's a, it's a good example, I think. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, has become really clear to me over the course of my uh, work here as a professional philosopher is that, you know, of course, reason and rationality are are a really big deal for, for philosophers, right? It's at the heart of the philosophical project to investigate these kind of basic human questions uh, in a way that privileges reason as a, as a mode of investigation. But one of the things that's become uh, really clear to me and I think that there's a kind of general consensus about this in the in the philosophical world is that uh, reason is always bound to context. There's no such thing as kind of uh, as kind of the universal overarching rationality that fits every scenario, right? Reason, yeah. reasoning, and reasons are something that always grow out of a, a particular context and of a particular set of prior commitments. Uh, and reason doesn't have a kind of autonomy such that you could snip it clean of those moorings in its particular setting and just transplant it to someplace else. Every kind of scenario is going to have its own special rules, its own special assumptions, its own special, uh, its own special uh, uh, brand of reasoning that goes along with it. Uh, and you can you can cross those boundaries to one degree or another, but there's always going to be limits to what you can do. And lots of times when we invoke reason with a capital R. Uh, I think we're invoking something that, that just plain doesn't exist. Let me quote from your letter to a CES student. Uh, you say that if your religion falls apart in your hands, 
Don't, without further ado, assume that this is because your religion doesn't work. Rather, start by inquiring into whether that disintegration may not itself be the clearest manifestation yet of the fact that your religion is working. Uh, I'm wondering if you can explain that better, because it, it comes across as a as a paradox or a fallacy. You know, like, what do you mean if it's breaking apart? How is that working? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it could be the case, I think, that if your religion is falling apart in your hands, it could be the case that's because it's just not working. I think that's, yeah. <laughs> that's totally possible. Uh, but I don't think, I don't think that's, that's necessarily a very good place to start, especially in the midst of that kind of often excruciating experience. And I think it has to do with the nature of, it has to do with the nature of the religious project itself. Because the whole point, the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of this religious project is, uh, to bring about the kind of fundamental transformation of who and what I am. Right, to experience a, a, a kind of profound conversion that reaches all the way down into the roots of what I am as a human being and changes me from the bottom up, right? That changes my thoughts, that changes my feelings, that changes my body, it changes my desires, changes my basic way of being in the world, such that instead of who and what I am being a manifestation of me, instead uh, who and what I am becomes a manifestation of, of God, of Christ, of the Spirit, right? His countenance becomes my countenance and when right when we begin to when we see our own ideas about things starting to crumble when we see our old ways of of dealing with the world and relating even to the church starting to fall apart uh that could very well be a sign of the fact that you're experiencing exactly the kind of profound transformation that the gospel promised you would that you're part of what's going to be involved here in in experiencing a conversion is that the old way you thought about things and the old way you felt about things, uh, that's going to crumble in your hands and you're going to have to, you're going to have to bring yourself back around, uh, to looking in the face what's, what's actually there. And that I think is a, it's a pivotal part of the religious experience itself and we ought to, we ought to expect it. And this is not, this is not, I don't think, it's not the kind of thing that's just going to happen once. If your religion is working, uh, then you're going to experience this a, a bunch of times, I think, right? Even even just over the span of your mortal life, you should experience some pretty profound, uh, and to one degree or another, perhaps even relatively traumatic transformations. Okay, so if I had to think of a, an example to demonstrate the general principle you're talking about, you know, say you you have somebody who puts a lot of faith in tithing as a way to enhance your income and get pay raises at work. I, you know, I, I think in general most church members don't buy into that, but, you know, I have heard from people before uh, who I've confided in, you know, hey, I got a pay raise at work, and they'll get, oh, it's your tithing helping you. And yet I can think of a lot of reasons how that pay raise was due to economic conditions <laughs> that seem to be, you know, and so there's kind of this, you know, if you take a certain view of a principle and you expect a certain outcome, you know, sometimes you might get that, you get that positive feedback that it's working and you see good things happen. But then I've talked to other people who, you know, you know, I've been paying my tithing and I thought I was doing a great job and now my, I've lost my employment and, you know, I've been on both ends. I've had pay raises and job losses, and the whole time I was paying a, a tithe. And so, and I know from 
comments at church and gospel doctrine, there's uh, usually if somebody brings up something kind of superficial like tithing's going to make you wealthier, um, somebody will usually come up pretty quickly with a, uh, well, that's not always the case. We don't know how those blessings come. And so your concept in, say, tithing as a revenue increaser <laughs> for your your bank account, that can indeed be broken. Uh, given an experience uh, by yourself or others. And when that happens, you need to find another way to understand uh, tithing and the blessings that come through it that um, you're willing to understand at a deeper level. Do you think that's a good a, a good analogy or maybe a good example, rather, of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think that's a nice kind of uh, bite-sized uh, example of, of what I'm talking about. It's often... It's often the case, I think, in these kinds of uh, fundamental conversion experiences, is that is that what happens is you you've got all the you've got all the same content uh, at the end as that you had at the beginning, but the framework within which you understand that content has gone has undergone a kind of fundamental renovation, a kind of fundamental transformation, and this kind of uh, this kind of foundation level re God's you know God God working at a kind of foundation fundamental level to to rework the framework in which we understand who we are and our relationship to the world uh, and even to the church I think that's that's the surest sign that that the things that He promised us would happen in our lives by way of the Spirit that, that they're actually happening. You know, if I can't say that I know that a certain principle is true. With with certainty, then aren't you on dangerous ground because you could change from that? And I I don't know that my responses come through very well because I'll say something like, "Well, I know an absolute truth exists. That doesn't mean I know it so well that I can't change how I think about it." I don't know. Maybe we don't teach it like we should in the church because I think we're re- we're really kind of geared towards that feeling of having it. Having the ear answers. Your answers are here. You don't need to worry. Well, that is. I mean, that is part of what we do, right? Part of part of what religion is designed to do. Part of what the church itself is built to do is to comfort the the afflicted. Yeah. But the the other part of what the church is designed to do is to afflict the comfortable, right? And if you, if you find yourself suddenly afflicted, uh, that could very well be a manifestation of the of the spirit at work positively in your life, pushing you, pushing you outside of that, of those, of those boundary lines of what you're previously comfortable with. Uh, maybe even in terms of, of what you were thinking about, uh, how you were thinking about the church, pushing you outside of those bounds. Uh, that could be, that's very, could very well be part of the, what the church itself is doing. So, you know, we're talking about what the church is doing Yet you seem to kind of imply we're not really concerned about too much about what the church is. You say Mormonism is not about Mormonism. And you give the analogy that this life isn't about me. My life isn't about me. And I, I find that um, those parallels very um, truthful in a lot of ways. But at the same time, I think of a person, you know, especially as a young man, as a teenager, I, and I think this goes back to, if you've ever read of James Fowler's stages of faith, you have this stage three area where a person, as they develop um, emotionally and spiritually as they get older, 
they almost they need to reach this point. They almost need. I can't see a way around it where Mormonism is your identity. That is, I am a Mormon. And, you know, it's just as much you as, you know, the way your face looks uh, to people who look at it. And you have this integrated sense of being with Mormonism. And so you really feel like Mormonism is about Mormonism because you are about Mormonism in a sense. And I think for a young man, that was very powerful and very good for me. And it really encouraged me to do things, pay the tithes, go to church. because I had that codependent identity with the church. And I see that as a positive, not a negative. Codependent is negative in most minds, but I kind of see that as a positive. I don't know how one can jump ahead uh, from that. But when you say Mormonism is not about Mormonism, I can imagine people saying, hey, that's wrong. That's not going to motivate people to care for Mormonism if they don't feel like they're an integrated part of it. Do you see that as a, as a, as a problem with this philosophy? I mean, I'm concerned about what Mormonism is aimed at, but if I feel more, my fellows within Mormonism are maybe not aiming their sights correctly, I may be tempted not to take part with the group. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's pretty clear that Mormonism on its own account is not about Mormonism. And Mormonism on its own account is about one way, I mean, there's a, good, a bunch of different ways we could name this, uh, but Mormonism about, is about Jesus. Right? Joseph Smith is not about Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is about Jesus. The Book of Mormon is not about the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is about Jesus. Uh, the church is not about the church. The church is about Jesus. And I think uh, as a place to start, you know, to circle back around to one of our earlier questions, as a place to start here, we ought to judge these things uh, in light of how how good a job they do in actually connecting us with Jesus, right? The Book of Mormon, the place to start in, in weighing in the balance the value of the Book of Mormon is whether it, it does what it says it, it aims to do, which is to connect us with, with Jesus, right? To connect us with, with life, with light, with salvation, with the Spirit. Uh, that's the place to begin. That's not the only thing we should take into account. Uh, but I think pretty clearly from the Book of Mormon's own perspective, that's the thing that matters to uh, the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, it ends up being a little dangerous in the end, I think, to think that these things uh, are about themselves in a way that they themselves insist they aren't. Right? If I wanted, if I wanted to think that the Book of Mormon is actually about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, I think that runs counter to what the Book of Mormon says about itself. The Book of Mormon doesn't claim that it's about its own truthfulness. The Book of Mormon claims that it's about Jesus Christ. Uh, and now those two things aren't—they're not totally unrelated to each other. But where you place your emphasis in terms of pursuing uh, pursuing an answer to your questions about the Book of Mormon will end up having, I think, a pretty serious effect on, on the kind of answer that you put yourself in a position to, to receive, to be able to hear. Okay. But I might counter back that I know that Moroni in the Book of Mormon asks us to pray to find out if these things are not true. Well, which which are the things? I mean, I would say that the historicity, I mean, I, I mean, as a young adult, and I think even to some extent today. Well, I don't, I don't think that's at all what Moroni says, though, in chapter okay. 10. I mean, I think Moroni's pretty clear that he wants you to reflect on God's grace as it's manifest in the history of, of humanity and then reflect on that and see if those things aren't true. That's interesting. I mean, I, I don't mean to be too contradictory with you. I, I just know that, 
you know, I approach a lot of these questions that you are answering from ways in the past that I have felt. And so I, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, it's, it definitely is a paradigm shift to think that, you know, we're not talking about the actual existence of gold plates. Um, well, we're not. I think I think we're not talking directly about it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I didn't mean to make it sound like uh, we're rejecting that because we absolutely are not. Uh, the point is that you know, you know exactly where did the Nephites land? I mean, where did all these things happen and occur? Um, is the way that I imagined it in my mind as I read about it did it actually happen the way I imagined it? You know, rather, what's the lesson you're learning from it? You know, ask if those things are true. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that that is a path forward for us to be more uh, interested in the the payoff, so to speak, of what it means to have a testimony. Well, I think your I think your worry is legitimate, though, too. I think it's uh, on the one hand, it's true that Mormonism, on its own account, is not about Mormonism, but on the other hand, we don't want to we don't want that to to lead us to the conclusion that we could just dispense with Mormonism altogether as if uh, as if it didn't matter then because it's not the thing that it's aiming at. I think there's a sense in which uh, that uh, even though Mormonism isn't its own target, it's not you can't just dispense with it either right it 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 yeah. plays it plays here kind of uh, a crucial role uh, in Connecting us to the things that are that matter to us here. You know, speaking of the Book of Mormon, you said in your blog post that uh, God doesn't want us pinning the success of the Book of Mormon on our success in trying to prove something we can't prove, and that He hasn't, or that He has explicitly chosen not to. Now. My question is, okay, well, so God doesn't want us to be distracted by questions, you know, how heavy were the gold plates, exactly where did the, where was the Nephite city of Zarahemla? I could totally buy into that. But at the same time, well, why doesn't he just give us the evidence so that way we don't have to make it be a worry? That's a really good question. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I assume, uh, I assume that he could, that he could if he wanted to. Uh, and it seems pretty clear to me uh, that he has apparently gone well out of his way to not supply that evidence, and uh, perhaps we ought to perhaps we ought to honor that in good faith. Yeah, I mean it's not just a Book of Mormon issue. I think there's a whole you know, life after death issue. There's the you know or any of the concepts or ideas that we learn about that are supernatural and even those that aren't you know it seems like well i don't want these doubts why don't you to make it difficult why don't you just tell me <laughs> yeah. and, and i think that is one of those things that we just we in order to be able to answer that we maybe have to be god himself and that's just not something we can expect to be able to do so <laughs> well i think we're going to have to be we're going to have to be comfortable with a a certain margin of error here with a certain yeah. degree of of ambiguity uh, as we as we undergo these kinds of serious fundamental transformations in how we understand ourselves and the world around us, uh, and I think uh, we're going to have to tolerate a certain amount of of ambiguity here 
and a certain allow a certain degree of of margin of error in order to be faithful to the things that we are a hundred percent certain about to the kinds of uh to the kinds of commitments that we don't have any doubt about it being absolutely essential that we stay committed to that we honor. You know, I may not know one way or the other uh, anything about the historicity of the Book of Mormon, uh, but uh, I do know a whole host of other things that lead me uh, with a kind of ongoing insistence to conclude that my life ought to be devoted to Mormonism. I want to ask your opinion. There are people who try to make a living out of, or at least a partial living, and going over ways and places that Book of Mormon may have happened. So there's this Heartland model that's been popularized recently. And, you know, I see books and seminars, and they give some genetic evidence, perhaps, that suggests a Middle Eastern or European-ish origin to the inhabitants of the Western Hemisphere before Columbus, and, you know, I look at a lot of these things, and I guess the skeptic in me likes to poke holes in those ideas, uh, some of them, and I think it's kind of funny, you know, there's, <laughs> well, they did this in ancient America just like they did it in Judaism, could there be a connection, and my answer is yes, they're humans, we all like to look at moon <laughs> cycles and make you know, dates and buy them. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is yeah. a connection. To me, the connection isn't. It, it, they must have learned it because Lehi brought it over. You know, that doesn't necessarily match. But I know a lot of people love it. And, you know, I'm cautious because I don't want to, at one hand, say, you know, that's a bunch of bunk because there may be truth to it. I mean, I absolutely don't know what's right or wrong about it. But at the same time, I worry about testimonies being damaged from that kind of thing. And I don't know, would you share a similar caution of, of warning when it comes to getting excited about these, I guess, theories of men applied to uh, historicity of certain religious ideas? Well, I'd, yeah, I think, I think I would share that worry. I would be worried. I'd, I'd be worried about getting overly excited about, uh, those kinds of issues either for or against. Yeah. Right? They seem to me, they don't seem to me, you know, wholly out of bounds, but they seem to me to be pretty small fish to fry in relationship to the more pressing, fundamentally human questions that uh, we've got knocking on our doors. Yeah, you know, I, I like how you call them the small fish. I, I think it's an interesting part of the human condition that we like, we like to wonder, we like to think, well, if the Book of Mormon has this story, where could that have happened? And, you know, I, I absolutely don't want to knock anybody for doing that. I just think it's fun and interesting. And we may, when we die, we'll probably all find out we're all wrong about a lot of things. But for some I reason... Hope, I hope so. <laughs> one of the things I liked about your your essay was how you say that happiness and meaning... Uh, which are the ultimate things I ought to be interested in, uh, they only accrue as a byproduct when my life and time and attention are aimed at something other than itself. And, you know, I, I totally agree with that, and that suggests that we don't need to go around trying to make other people happy all the time. And, you know, I hear of people 
getting some kind of a codependent need to make other people happy, and that seems to be similarly damaging. And how would you maybe divide that that seeming conflict where someone might suggest, well, you can't live as if happiness is just for everyone else. You'll you know you'll get burned out, and you'll not take care of your own spiritual needs if you do that. Yeah, well, I think I think it is true that happiness and meaning. Uh, to the degree that they're available, right? We can only experience them as a kind of byproduct. If we, if you pursue happiness and meaning directly, uh, you will. There's something about the very nature of happiness and meaning that if you try to aim directly at them, you'll never, you'll never find them. I mean, the example would be something like uh, if you want a recipe for an absolutely miserable marriage, uh, then go around worrying all the time whether or not your wife is making you happy. Right, yeah. if you're constantly if you're constantly checking in, is she making me happy or not? Right, you're constantly weighing this on the balance. You're constantly thinking of ways in which maybe she could be doing better to make you happy. Right, this will be your your marriage is destined for for misery and failure uh, yeah. if you go if you go about your marriage that way. Right, same thing with same thing with your children. Same thing I think in general with with your work, uh, and the same thing I think applies over the over the whole long arc of your own uh, of your own life. I think the same, that doesn't just apply uh, in, with respect to the pursuit of my own happiness, uh, but I think it also applies uh, to some degree with respect to uh, happiness for the people that I care most about, too. Yeah. Right, if, I, if I spend all of my time worrying about whether or not I'm making my wife happy, that's not likely to be beneficial for, for the marriage either. But right, if I... If I spend my, if I devote my time and effort and energy to, uh, to developing the pa- uh, capacities for, for care, for attention, for service, uh, for being present, for, for being faithful, right, then out of these things grow as a kind of, uh, a natural byproduct, uh, a sense of, a sense of confidence, a sense of, uh, a sense of connection, uh, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of of happiness. Yeah, and I think this is this is true. This is true with respect to with the gospel itself, right? If I'm if I'm always, for instance, if I'm always taking the temperature of my own testimony to see how my own testimony is doing, right? That's that's going to be terrible for for my testimony. Mm-hmm. No testimony can survive that kind of constant checking in, right? It's as if you keep looking in the oven to see how your souffle is doing, right? There's something about the nature of the souffle you're trying to bake that if you keep checking on it, uh, you'll you'll ruin the thing. Uh, and so, I think we have to we have to we have to start from here a position of of enough faith, of enough confidence uh, in the goodness of the thing that we're already committed to, that we can give it and us room. To grow, to change, and allow the allow the incidental things uh, to be incidental, and, and allow uh, over a longer arc, right, room for room for really rich, substantial, satisfying evidence to show itself concretely in our first person experience of the world. Yeah, in fact, while you're talking about the the marriage part of it, I recall there's a very popular. Uh, post by a gentleman named Seth Adam Smith, uh, where he writes that marriage isn't for you, uh, where he you know he, re- he talks about that same idea. And I just looked him up on Google again uh, <laughs> to see 
where it was. But anyway, he has a looks like he has a new piece out that I'm going to have to read called "Marriage Still Isn't for Me and Neither Is My Life." I wonder if he read your blog post. <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's it's Gospel 101. Yeah. Right? This, this claim that you you're only gonna the only way you can save your life is by losing it, and if you try to if you try to save your life, good luck. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the, right. the same thing's true of a testimony, right? If, to, to some degree, if uh, the only way to save my testimony here is to be willing to be willing to to lose it, to to let it go, to uh, to persist here, even as these kind of fundamental transformations in in my understanding of myself and the church and the world, even as I even as I undergo them, to be faithful nonetheless to these relationships, um, even if. We and I and they aren't what I had thought they were or had hoped they were. So one of the things that you say said in your essay that I thought was it's hard for people to accept, as you say, is let's admit up front here that our Mormon stories involve a whole host of things that can only be described as unlikely, very unlikely, and extremely unlikely. And you talk about angels, miracles, gold plates, life after death, world of spirit. And saying that downplays the the rationalist element. I think a rational being would look at characters like Christ and say, well, he is just some guy. People aren't born of virgins. He became very popular for something. But, you know, in the end, he was just a person. And it was probably just a, a bunch of human nature fogging the eyes of a lot of people that caused him to believe in his divinity. Right. Most likely from a purely secular historical or historian's point of view, uh, I mean, it seems like an honest opinion that Christ wouldn't be divine. And you could say the same of Joseph Smith, of Moses, of anybody. And so to me at the same time, time, I like reading that because I can relate to it. You're right. It is unlikely. And that is it. And in a way, I would validate that unlikeliness as being a perfectly rational way of thinking. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it seems like we have to believe in these unlikely things for uh, spiritual purposes that, you know, we can't, see if I'm going to say this correctly, but I really see a lot of value in believing in things that are extremely unlikely. And I, I think that's the the tact you're taking. And the way you explain it is that you say, these beliefs look crazy from the outside. And while we're not denying that they exist, we have a transformation that comes from them. So can you explain, I guess, or maybe even bear a testimony, how do these beliefs and understandings though unlikely, are, are still true. How has that transformed you and lifted you up in life? Well, I think different, different people have have different kinds of gifts and different people have uh, have different kinds of perspectives or need to hear different kinds of things or be in a position even to say different kinds of things in relationship to, to these kinds of questions. Uh, for my part... I am, uh, in one way, I am a professional skeptic, mm-hmm. right? I'm, as a professional philosopher, I'm, I'm really good at two things. I'm really good at abstraction, and I'm really good at doubt, right? Yeah. 
I'm a professional doubter. That's why we don't trust you sometimes. Eh? <laughs> well, and with with good reason, I think. Uh, always take always take philosophers with a grain of salt, and I say that knowing both myself and a host of other yeah. professional philosophers. Uh, but so I'm part of. Uh, you know, and from for me, from from my perspective, I think part of what's unsatisfying about uh, about Jeremy Runnell's letter to a CES director is that not that it's too skeptical, but that from my perspective, uh, one thing that's really unsatisfying about it is that it's not nearly skeptical enough, right? That it, in some ways, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't even it doesn't even relay raise some of the the fundamental religious questions or problems. Of whether or not God exists, or how do we deal with the with the problem of evil, uh, the nature of suffering, etc. Right? These kind of really, I think, deep, substantial, uh, religious questions that dominate for me my relationship to religion, and I think it carry for me a lot more weight with respect to whether or not the religious project is is something credible than than the kinds of questions that the kind of more local, small scale questions that Jeremy raises and. Uh, letter to a CES director, but all of this is a way of saying, to, uh, given this, right? Given, given what kind of careful, decades-long cultivation of a capacity for uh, for doubt and skepticism, still, right? Still, even in that context, it, I would be, I would be dishonest and in bad faith to say that, regardless of how unlikely. So many of these beliefs are something very real and powerful and good is happening to me in the pew on Sunday when I bring myself back again. When I bring myself back again, when I kneel down again, when I read the Book of Mormon again, regardless of all of my skepticism about all of the different kinds of questions we could raise, something is happening to me and it kind of substantial first-person way uh, that I can't deny, regardless of what doubts I may have about uh, a lot of these peripheral third-person historical kinds of questions. Uh, and the pull of that is sufficiently strong that there's no place else for me to go. Here I am, and, and I don't see how I don't see how I could end up someplace else. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Adam, and I appreciate talking with you, and I, uh, I I hope that you know many others will listen to your message and uh, come to a, a similar conclusion, especially as they uh, grapple with some of the tougher issues of, I guess, truth and what it is and what it means to be a believer. Thank you very much. You're welcome. If if the things we've talked about today are are helpful to some people, I'll be happy to hear it. And if if they aren't, then who am I? Let it go and read or look for help someplace else.